it's a it's a it's a real privilege to um, work and build uh, towards something that you really believe in. And if if anybody out there has an itch to start a company or a project, I would say scratch that itch and talk to people that you trust um, about that idea. Um, and also be judicious about who you talk uh, with about your idea because the, an idea in its early stage is very vulnerable and, and therefore you are very vulnerable because you are sort of very meshed with this idea. Um, and there, were, there are people who will, who will build it up and give honest feedback, whether it's you know, encouraging or not. Um, but you don't want to sort of share your pearls with anybody. It's not about keeping an idea secretive. It's more about who do you trust to, to speak truth into you and not project themselves onto your idea. So just, just be wise about who you share that idea with, but, but definitely share it and talk about it because that's how it will get refined. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Look Up Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. And as always, I sincerely appreciate your presence and your continued support as you travel along on this journey of discovery with me. You might have noticed over this latest season that the episodes have grown in terms of the topics that they cover and spending a lot more time with entrepreneurs, um, speaking to a lot of individuals about broader philosophy. We are no longer just um, confining this show to uh, social media and the impact of technology on our mental health, although we will continue to dive into subjects of consciousness and mental health and yogic philosophy and uh, any other subjects that you want to explore along with me. I'm loving it. I'm loving the shift. I get to meet an incredibly diverse group of characters that all bring a unique perspective to help me frame my view of the world. Uh, this beautiful, complex place that's all just a part of the cosmic dance uh, that we all are so blessed to be a part of. And again, right, the purpose of this show is in service to all of you, the listeners. So always feel free to reach out to me, marc at thelookuppodcast.com or warkmeinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on Instagram. Oh, man, I'm loving this so, so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. What an incredible time this is. I'm recording on March 31st, 2020. And boy, does it feel like uh, March has been a long month. What a roller coaster ride of a month. We are smack in the middle of the coronavirus um, pandemic. The U.S. is on lockdown. I'm here in France recording. This episode that I'm about to introduce was the first episode that I recorded in 2020. We recorded the first week of February, so a little over a month ago today. There's a bit of a lag in my releasing episodes right now, but we'll soon catch up, I'm sure. And I was introduced to this guest by my friend Masha Drokova, who is a venture investor at Day One Ventures, and I believe that they are investors in uh, Philips' company, Nebia. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what we were going to talk about at first. I don't enjoy making these episodes <clears throat> simply a promotional vehicle for companies. 
Um, but I trust Masha implicitly. And I looked at Philip's background and saw that he did a ton of work uh, in the impact space and um, particularly in emerging economies. And I thought there was a lot that we could chat about. So Philip Winter, my guest, let me tell you a little bit something about him. Philip is the co-founder and CEO of Nebia. And Nebia is reinventing the way that people shower. They're creating a better experience, a beautiful design, and unprecedented water savings. Uh, Philip explains the water savings in our conversation. Nebia has a direct-to-consumer approach um, that changes the game for hardware companies that aren't building just electronic devices, but also things like shower heads. And the Nebia shower actually can reduce your water consumption by somewhere between six and 8,000 gallons a year, 50% of the average individual's water consumption in a given year, which is pretty great considering that just in recent memory, we've had a number of cities enter into major water crisis mode and face droughts. My home city of Los Angeles has had its own challenges with water. So prior to uh, Nebia, Philip was a Princeton in Latin America fellow working at Endeavor in Mexico City. He has a passion for the confluence of business and international development work. He earned a bachelor's in international relations at my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, where he was also a member of the varsity golf team. Um, and Nebia, his company, has some pretty incredible investors like Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, um, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, and um, the team at Y Combinator, which is the leading uh, tech incubator in Silicon Valley, super cool company. And one of my favorite moments in this episode is when Philip is describing <clears throat> his Y Combinator interview and how the president of YC at that time, Sam Altman, asked to take a shower after 10 minutes of interview uh, and decided to invest, which is pretty cool. So we don't just talk about Nebia, of course. We keep it a little bit broader. Um, I'm super interested in the trials and tribulations of building a company as an entrepreneur. Nebia is one of those classic examples of the overnight success, quote unquote, that has been six years in the making. Um, we talk about what it means to be an entrepreneur focused on impact, the principles that have supported Philip through his we discuss the vibe in Silicon Valley and what's changing over there, including some of the habits of entrepreneurs and even the capture of some traditional ceremonies and medicines like psychedelics that are now being used as life hacks. And of course, you can't speak to a founder in the sustainability space without defining sustainability, talking about the challenges of impact and impact investing, and speaking about global water consumption. And we even touch on the potential for a global water-related crisis, which it's probably challenging to think about right now, given where we're at with the current pandemic, but it is certainly within the realm of possibility if the economy starts to ramp back up in the way that it was before coronavirus BC. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you'll see that Philip is incredibly intelligent and thoughtful and measured in his words. Um, I learned a lot. I had a lot of fun. And it really re-inspired me to keep going with this show at a time when I was just over a month ago. It's crazy to think. It feels so long ago now, but concerned as to whether I would keep going. But here I am, and here you are listening. So sit back and enjoy this episode with Philip Winter, CEO of Nebia. Nebia. 
All right, Philip, thank you for joining me for the first recorded episode of the Look Up podcast in 2020. Um, I'm excited to have you on here and to properly connect. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you here to be a part of it. Yeah, so I'll, I, I gave a little bit of background in the intro um, on you know you and, and Nebia, but I guess the, the thing that I'm most curious about is why did you decide to start a showerhead business? <laughs> all, all great ideas come in the bathroom, right? Uh, like taking a shower. No, the it's sort of a it's sort of a long story, um, and, it, and it dates back prior to me. Um, so I have two co-founders, um, and one of them uh, used to run a large chain of high-end health clubs in Mexico City, where he's from, and. Love Mexico City. I was just actually there this weekend. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. It's a really special place. And, um, well, so you know Mexico City is a city of 20 million people. It's at like 7,000 feet of elevation. And there's no major body of water water nearby. So it's a scarce resource. It's in high demand. And so in this high-end chain of gyms where they had about 25,000 people per day taking showers, they were really concerned about the high use of water and it was one of his highest variable costs. And so Carlos, my co-founder, asked his dad, who was at that point in his mid-80s, um, obviously retired. He was an engineer <laughs> and tinker sort to help him find a solution. And it was really his dad who had the idea to, to use these atomizing nozzles that have been used in other industries. They're used in uh, internal combustion engines. They're used in agricultural sprays and rocket engines for, for fuel injection and make them into a shower prototype, which had never really been done before. Um, and that was the sort of, that was the, the origin of how it all started. Fast forward a few years, this was a side project for Carlos and his father. I'm living in Mexico City, working at a nonprofit called Endeavor, which helps entrepreneurs scale their businesses. And I met Carlos and he told me about this side project that he had with his dad and he had the shower and saved a lot of water and he had a prototype at his house if I wanted to come over and try it. So I went over to his house and took a shower in the prototype um, and love the idea. And we started working together. And this was uh, in late 2013. Uh, my background is uh, in international relations. I sort of worked at nonprofits. And I had also coincidentally worked on a composting toilet that doesn't use any water for flood prone areas in the developing world. So I saw this. This was um, toilets for people. That's right. Uh, that was like one of the first things I did out of college. Um, and so I had sort of an interest in the area. I didn't think I would graduate college and do two things in the bathroom space. That's just sort of the way it worked out. Um, and when we started working together, uh, our first approach was let's develop this technology to make a product that can be mass distributed to hundreds of millions of people in the developing world, parts of Africa, uh, Asia, India, you know, Latin America, where water scarcity is a really pressing issue. And we sort of um, played around with that idea and it wasn't long before we sort of looked at it from a different approach and we said, well, what if rather than starting at the base of the pyramid, making something that's mass distributed, we make a product and a brand that is something that people desire and actually want to have. Um, and in so doing, can we have more influence and more impact sort of over a long time horizon? Um, the smart home movement was just beginning that nest. I don't know if you remember the, Smart thermostat company had sort of just launched. The Internet of Things was a nascent term, but people were starting to talk about it. And we said, well, what if we build a, make it about uh, design and innovation in the sustainability space and really build a brand around that? 
And so we, we thought about that idea. We, we came out to the Bay Area and met with some folks, um, sort of tested the idea. California was in the height of an historic drought at that point in 2013. And so there's a lot of receptiveness to the idea of saving water. Um, and not long after that, we were convinced to do this. And so I finished sort of the, the one year fellowship that I had, uh, at this nonprofit. And a few months later, packed my bags and moved to San Francisco, started the thing here. That's great. And there's so much, there's so much there that I want to touch on. I'd like to, I'd like to go back in time and start with your work, um, in the nonprofit field. Uh, and you know, you tra- it sounds like you, you spent a month, a year at Endeavor or how long were you there? I was there for one year. And what type of work were you doing there? Yes, I was there on a fellowship, a program called Princeton in Latin America. It was just a fellowship that I was a part of. And the, the organization is, is um, I don't know, in 25 or 30 different countries. It's based out of New York. And the goal is, um, can we create ecosystems of entrepreneurship in markets that don't have an ecosystem? Um, and in so doing, foster... Entrepreneurship is a vehicle for economic development and growth. And the idea, you know, there's been a lot of focus on um, micro enterprises and microfinance, but there hasn't been a lot of focus on really scaling up companies from, I don't know, just say $10 million to $100 million, which in the developing world is a really big deal. And it's all sort of focused on connecting mentors with entrepreneurs um, with no other benefit than helping their country um, and their sort of local economies prosper. I mean, it was a really inspiring model, um, and it's had a tremendous amount of impact. And if you, if you think about a place like Mexico City, where they have an office, or in Brazil, or in Amman, Jordan, you know, there aren't a lot of um, case studies and examples that people can point to as like entrepreneurial heroes. You either had to be well connected, you know, part of a royal family, or part of a sort of certain social class to, to be able to do something. And this was all about creating, you know, what is inherent in Silicon Valley, which is a, like a very tight feedback loop. A lot of successful entrepreneurs who then invest and, and advise and become mentors. And so my role was working with um, entrepreneurs in the selection process. It was sort of like a rigorous process saying, hey, who would we work with? Who would we help? And I would work with those entrepreneurs to create business case studies of what they were what they were building. And how did you think about kind of, I think you said massive impact on their, on their community or on their country. Like how did you think about impact and, and measuring impact um, as you were evaluating these entrepreneurs? Was it, was it, did you take kind of like a venture lens and look at market size and um, competitive landscape, things like that? Or was there something beyond, you know, the capitalist drive? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You know, I think one of the things that's unique about Endeavor is that it's it's um, market and sort of business segment agnostic, um, as long as it's not doing something that's considered unethical. And it's all about scale. And the idea is that the biggest companies in economy in our economy are the ones that have um, obviously create the most jobs, have the biggest impact on GDP, but also generate the most amount of money and investment in R and D. Um, and can create other sort of, you know, can create successful managers who can become um, advisors and mentors to, to other folks. And so the way that Endeavor thinks about impact is on a broad scale. Hey, big business, big businesses are the ones that really move the needle in an economy. Um, and I think that that influenced my understanding around the importance of scale. And you know, I didn't study business as undergrad. I studied 
international relations. And uh, so for me, it was like a condensed MBA in a year of, of working with like 25 or 30 entrepreneurs really closely to, to understand the, the key elements of their business and what they were working on. Yeah, it sounds like a good crash course in business and finance, um, maybe better than the, the four years at Wharton, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so, okay, so you move from the nonprofit space, you meet your co-founder. You know, one thing that, that really struck me is you guys are really starting to gain momentum, uh, a lot of notoriety in the press today. I think you were in TechCrunch and Wired and, and a couple of other, Bloomberg, um, and a few other big publications over the last, you know, month. But we often hear about the the overnight success that took, you know, five to 10 years. And I, and I feel like history just gets rewritten, right? And it's like, oh, this just happened. Like, but, you know, you've been working at this for six years. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, that, that journey, because I imagine it wasn't easy going for the last six years to, to really get this, this company, um, churning the way that it is. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely right. There are all the cliches about the ups and downs of a startup, I think are, are very true. At least that's been my experience. And to be honest, it felt like for the first year we set really ambitious goals and sometimes it took us a little bit longer to get to them, but then we would sort of blow through that milestone by like 10 times. Um, mm. And then we sort of set a new guidepost and we blow through that. And that was the first year. It's like we had a ton of tailwind. And mm. since that moment, it's been almost all headwind. And it's all been challenges and difficult. <laughs> um, so I'm just beginner's luck kind of like comes to mind. I, I don't mean that, you know, in, in a derogatory way. Just that is the experience, right, of one year of tailwinds. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, man. And it's just been five years of, you know, just going, you know, straight into the current, um, yeah. which has made us, I guess, stronger um, and more resilient, you know, although it's, it's put us out of business almost, you know, a couple of times. And I, I guess sort of to, to put what I mean into, uh, into context, like the, the essential story is we moved to San Francisco. I had a few prototypes um, in hand and I knew a few people like that was it. My Rolodex was like three or four people. And I would just take meetings with whoever would talk to me about their shower, you know, and, <laughs> and, and like nine out of 10 meetings would go nowhere because people would be like, come on, you moved to San Francisco to do a shower startup and you don't even have an app. And I was like, come on. One out of 10 would lead somewhere. Person, the people would be like, wow, this is great. You know, there's been no innovation in this space. I totally see what you're doing. It's a ubiquitous product. Like here are three or four people I know who can help you. And so that, that really struck me when I moved here. I was like, how quick people were to say, hey, I... You know, I, I don't think what you're doing is great. You should change it these ways. Or I love what you're doing. And here are three or four of the most helpful people I know. Um, and so within about a month and a half, we landed a pilot at Equinox Gyms, um, which for us was like, you know, a super important milestone because we could set up some prototypes and talk to a couple hundred people per day and get feedback, which like, it's not that easy to get that much feedback on a shower. It's like, you got to get someone into a shower stall naked, try it, you know, come out and tell you what they think. But the gym is great because there's a lot of foot traffic. And it just so happens that we met our first investors uh, in the gym just because of situation and where we were. So we were really fortunate. Then we did a pilot at Google. Then we did a pilot at Apple's campus. Um, and, and, and then it went really badly. Like people were too cold. The product wasn't functioning the way that we wanted it to. Um, and I was really distraught. I remember 
we got our first investment um, on a Monday from a fairly well-known investor. And two or three days later, uh, we were doing this pilot at Apple, and it just went terribly. Like such to the point where the vast majority of people were didn't like the product. <laughs> and I had kind of maxed out in terms of my ideas of what we could do to improve it. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, we're gonna have to return this money. This is so embarrassing. Like we don't have a ubiquitous product. But I just met this guy whose name is Gabe, who ended up becoming our third co-founder through a friend. He was a mechanical engineer with a background in thermal fluids. And coincidentally, he worked at Apple on the iPhone team. And I just met him. He said, Philip, don't worry. I've got a few ideas. Let me uh, go back over the, the Christmas holiday break and dust off my old textbooks from my mechanical engineering thermal fluids classes and come up with a model. And so he, he came back after the new year had this model and we improved the prototype by like 15 degrees Fahrenheit, which was, it felt like an order of magnitude improvement. And we, anyway, we worked together for a couple of months. He was moonlighting in the evenings, uh, coming back from work. And we finally convinced him to leave Apple to join us, uh, as our third co-founder. We applied to Y Combinator. Somehow they gave us a, an interview. Um, cause we were kind of a sort of an odd applicant in that again, we were a hardware product, didn't have software, electronics. And uh, Y Combinator is like a, one of the preeminent startup incubators. Um, and we had this 10-minute interview. Like all of the interviews are 10 minutes, let's say. And they make a decision for 10 minutes. And like they even have like a, an alarm clock on the table, like, you know, so you don't go over the 10 minutes. And like five or six minutes into the interview, Sam Altman, who was the president of Y Combinator at the time, stands up and he goes, okay, I'm going to take a shower. We had brought a prototype to their offices to show them, thinking that they would like put their hand under it, you know, feel the spray. And he said, I'm going to take a shower. That's yeah, amazing. He's like, we're like, Sam, we didn't even bring a towel. Like, we didn't think we were going to shower. All we had was like this small hand towel that was like dirty. He's like, oh, I'll use that. So he went in and took a shower and loved it. Um, and, uh, and then we got into Y Combinator. We worked super hard to launch a Kickstarter campaign before the end of three-month incubator. Um, the, the Kickstarter blew up. We were in the New York Times and sort of written about all over the world. And that for us was a huge validation because it proved that the idea we were working on had appeal really around the world. You know, there's something about a innovation in the space of water in the shower um, that really resonated with people. Um, and so we raised $3 million on Kickstarter and we raised a little bit more money from private investors and we were off to the races. At that point, we, we were able to, or we had to turn away investors, people who wanted to put money in Nevia. Um, never again has have I had necessarily the opportunity, opportunity to do that. And that's what I mean when like sometimes you have this tailwind. Um, and pretty much everything since then has been really hard. What year was that around? Because you started this in 2013. So that was summer guessing, of 2015. So the first year you were in Mexico in your partner's gyms, basically getting the prototype sorted. Working part time because we had sort of we each had other things we were working on. Okay. And then the second year, you, you personally moved out to San Francisco. Your partner stayed in Mexico and you were just hustling to try to meet the right people. I uh, got this Equinox deal and that kind of led you to Y Combinator. Ton of investment, $3 million in 2015. $3 million in Kickstarter. We raised private investment and and was there was, I saw in, I saw in some of the articles that Tim Cook invested in this company. So was that during the Equinox pilot, or is that timeline a little bit off in, in the articles? It was it was during one of the gym paths that we did early on, without saying exactly where we met. Um, but we, we met in one of the gym pilots, um, 
and he loved loved what we were working on. Um, he was one of the first people we met. He tried it for like three days in a row, gave a ton of uh, feedback, and you know one one of the things he said to me because because at that point it was a prototype, like it was it was pretty rudimentary. So he invested pre he and Eric Schmidt both invested pre Y Combinator. Yeah. Wow. Right. I'm shocked that you got an interview at Y Combinator then. I mean, <laughs> come on. I guess I, I, you know, I probably had something to do with it, but, but one of the things that Tim Cook said was, cause we, we were talking a little bit about the prototype and how we would go to market with it. And I told him, look, we've gotten some feedback to people who really don't like it. And he says, Phil, don't listen to the naysayers. We get naysayers all the time at Apple. And what you guys are doing is really innovative. It's like, keep, keep charging ahead. And I probably grew about six inches in that moment, you know, and felt a sort of a ton of confidence that, and here was somebody who's, who spends a lot of time thinking about what the future looks like. And he can understand and see like the importance and relevance of this a couple of years out, even if it's still very much in its concept stage. Um, and uh, so, you know, I've obviously never forgotten that. Um, and, and how often are you in touch with him and Eric Schmidt and these other investors? Uh, and with Sam Allen? With some more than others. Um, Tim is probably the person we speak with the most out of that group. Um, a few times a year, I would say, either on the phone or email or um, or occasionally meeting up and sort of showing the latest stuff that we're working on. Uh, he's a he's a very uh, very down to earth person, and I think that, I think the reason he was intrigued by Nebia is because of um, the emphasis on sustainability and sort of the overlap between that and product design. So I think he's somebody who like deeply cares a lot about the environment. Um, What's it like having, you know, having investors and mentors of that caliber? You know, I, I imagine that it's it's a double-edged sword in some ways because it's it's incredible to have that backing. But at the same time, I, I'm imagining like having another set of parents that I really don't want to let down, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think um, in, in our case, we've been really fortunate. All of these folks, we were really candid up front saying, hey, we want to build something over the long term. You know, we think this is a big problem um, and there's no innovation in this space. And they were sort of all on board for that. Um, and, you know, the, the truth is that they're investing in this because it's a, it's a personal passion for them and they believe in the project and they you know, believe enough in us to, to invest in us. Um, and we've, we've kind of always tried to be very candid in terms of the, you know, the opportunities and the challenges that we face. But um, yeah, it, it's, I think it's been nothing but, but helpful. Um, if anything, you know, it's helped us because it, it brings attention to what we're working on. Sometimes it's a bit of a distraction because that's what people want to focus on, you know, whether yeah, sort of in the media and so forth. Um, I kind of have to pinch myself sometimes because we've been, we've been really fortunate. Yeah, absolutely. So, so just kind of stepping back to the story. So now 2015, you have investment from Y Combinator. You graduate from the class. You get, you know, your round is overflowing. There's about three million that comes in, and as you said, you know, it was never that easy. It it wasn't that easy again to raise capital. So, like, what what happened then? I think it was a confluence of several things. This was late 2015. We launched our Kickstarter two weeks before Y Combinator's demo day, which is at the end of the three month incubator, and you pitch to a room of 250 investors plus a lot of investors who sort of log in online to watch it. Um, and we raised some private capital, you know, enough to the next couple of years. And we, we set out to make this product. You know, we had sold almost 10,000 units. 
of a product that all we really had was a prototype. We didn't really know if it was possible to make it. We had promised a product that was Apple quality um, in a space that you know didn't really have much innovation. And we wanted to deliver something that was Apple quality. Um, and it just it took longer than we anticipated, you know, like trying to save as much water as humanly possible and make a phenomenal shower experience and make a product that's very easy to install in your home um, and that has certain design elements and uses premium materials. It was just, it's challenging like to do that out of the gates. Um, we wanted to make it in the U.S. Um, you know, there's this, there's this famous triangle in product design or architecture um, where you have uh, product quality at one end of the triangle, cost at the other end, and time at the third point. And you can only have two of those at a time. You can't have all three. Like you can't have great quality and do it at a great cost and do it fast. Like you have to choose two out of three. And we optimize for quality um, and time. And so that meant that cost was sort of the, the part that we left out of the equation. And so you and so your price point early on was was quite high. The price point early on was was high. We you know essentially it was around five hundred dollars, um, but we had pre-sold a bunch on Kickstarter at less than that, basically at what ended up being cost. Um, and uh, and there was a lot of sort of hard lessons, like making hardware is hard. Hardware was really hot in the, in the startup world, but it's really hard to make physical products at a certain quality and cost and price target. Um, and we had sort of a, a lot of hard lessons throughout that period. I think we finally delivered that product and it was a little bit behind schedule, but we delivered a great Gen 1 product, sort of had all those promises and, and had a ton of innovations beyond just the shower experience. Um, and it definitely had opportunities for improvement. And we got to work on Gen 2 of that. It was around that time that we, we tried to raise a little bit more capital and we did. Um, and we saw a lot of our peer companies in the hardware, you know, consumer tech space going out and raising 10, 20 plus million dollar rounds and scaling up the teams really fast. Um, and we elected to take a different approach, which was to keep the team relatively lean and small, which meant it would take us a little bit longer to do things, but we would have a, an infrastructure and sort of an operating structure as a company that was uh, easier to scale up and down, a little bit more manageable. Um, and I think what's ended up happening is a lot of our pure hardware companies like haven't made it or those who have had exits or sort of made it to the next stage have done so, you know, at, at multiples that didn't necessarily make a lot of money for the, for the people involved. Um, and I think the, the wisdom that I, that I have gleaned from that and my co-founders as we reflect, you know, in five or six years is building a, an innovative physical product as opposed to a direct consumer brand, you know, a mattress or luggage or shoes or eyeglasses, where the innovation is simply the dis like the distribution, the go to market. In our case, we were trying to both innovate on distribution and go to market by selling online. But we were also trying to innovate on the product, you know, and do something that didn't really exist. And like as a, you know, we have four or five patents, um, and you, it's really hard. You can't really do both at once. You have to sort of pick one. Um, and to make a, a physical, an innovative physical goods product. Um, it takes two or three iterations to get the product dialed in to like get just the right feature set that customers actually really care about, um, to get the, the right price. It's like, what are people actually going to pay for this? And then to get the right cost, which is really important. Um, 
And we've just launched our, our third product. And I think we now have a chance to really get there and, and scale it up. Um, and it's unfortunate because a lot of these other companies that go on to raise really big rounds, at some point they don't hit that exit velocity with the product and they kind of run out of oxygen. Investors aren't willing to give them more money. But, but I think by staying lean, you know, we're 15 people. We have an office in San Francisco. We have an office also in Mexico City. We've been able to iterate long enough because I think our thesis of building and company that's about innovation and sustainability in water is, is only more relevant now than it was when we started. Interesting. So you said, you know, one philosophy that you've learned is kind of keeping it lean, um, going with that lean startup mentality and not getting greedy on capital raising. You obviously could have expanded that first round if you really wanted to, diluted yourselves more, but had a little bit more runway. What other, you know, what other philosophies have guided you as an entrepreneur over the last six years or so? What's kept you sane? <laughs> um, for me, it's been really important in the difficult moments to know that what I'm working on is something that I like deeply believe in. You know, you have to have you have to have some degree of um, deep conviction in what you're doing, um, and it might vary. You know, some ideas you know are just a lot more heart grabbing than others. Um, I'm a person in, you know, personally, I'm very driven um, by being connected to an idea. And it's sort of, so I knew that that had to be a big element. And so knowing that we're building a product that on some level is going to leave the world better off because we made the product. Um, mm. Even though we have, you know, there's, there's an environmental footprint to manufacturing and making our product. I think that the net environmental impact is positive. And you couldn't say that for many products. And what is the, what is just, this seems like a good time to ask, like, what is the water savings per unit? It's between like half of the water you use compared to a standard shower all the way up to about 65%. And that's, that's incredible. How many gallons of water is that per, per person? Do you guys have those metrics? Yeah. So the, um, the average shower uses about, um, 20 gallons per shower. And so that's, you know between seven and 8,000 gallons of water uh, per year. And you use half or slightly less than half of that. You shower with one of our, uh, one of our products. So if you think about it, if you're able to reach the scale that you obviously like to reach, which is probably millions of consumers, yeah. tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions, I mean, the, the impact is, is absolutely massive as far as water use. Yeah, I mean, to date, we estimate that our customers have saved a little over 200 million gallons of water. And that's with a, like a premium product at a premium price point. That's sort of our proof of concept. We've now just launched a product on Kickstarter, which is um, on Kickstarter through the end of February. Uh, and it costs around $200, which we think will take us from tens of thousands of homes into hundreds of thousands of homes. Um, and we're working on more products um, that we think will take us into millions of homes. And so that was kind of you know, our original strategy to start at the top of the pyramid to make a, a product people aspire to have and to use that to sort of scale our technology and make it ever more accessible. Yeah. It I turns out like similar to the Tesla strategy of starting with a roadster. Yeah, it's, it seems like the right approach because, you know, I, there's so many companies that want to um, – you know, you mentioned microfinance as an example um, in places like Africa and Latin America. And, you know, they, they want to they have this world-changing mentality, as you said, at the, the bottom of the pyramid. 
but there's so much more low hanging fruit. Like as I'm thinking through this idea now, the, the concept of having this type of shower throughout Africa, there seems like, there seems like much more pressing, um, opportunities to have an environmental impact there than, you know, than this, than a consumer product. Absolutely. And, and for us, it was like, how could we build something that's sustainable and scalable and that people really want? And, and it came from an insight that, you know, by and large, people don't want to save water in their shower. It's like, if, you know, you ever tried a low flow shower, they're generally not a very good experience, right? I read some feedback online about this, actually. Um, some, if, if, if it's cold out there, it sounds like it's a, a low flow shower is not as enticing. People, people don't like saving water in their shower. Um, by and large, and we said, well, if we can make a better shower experience um, that people like to use, um, the ability then to go into other products um, is far greater. Um, and so our, our, sort of, our focus is, hey, what are other ways that people use water in the home that haven't been innovated on in, in a number of years? Um, and can we washer make a better dryer. product experience? What do you think, washer, dryer, sinks? I think everything is up for grabs. Um, and, and there hasn't been meaningful innovation in most of those categories in a long time. And, and what, what becomes really interesting is when you start to track the quality of water that goes into people's homes and you can collect that information and therefore help people treat the quality of water at the source into the house. And that's information and data that like municipalities and um, utilities and government doesn't even have. Um, and can we avoid you know, outbreaks of or water quality. Super interesting. One thing I heard from you is basically if this if this didn't have a sustainability angle, you might not have lasted the slog of six years because it was your passion for making an impact that really drove you here. Obviously, you want to start a good business, um, you know, and you want to have success. You want to scale to a massive company, but it's this, you know, closing in on something, an idea that you were passionate about that really. Um, helped drive you through the challenges of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, you know, if you don't, if you don't love what you're doing, I think the other thing I would add to that is is working with really great people who you trust um, and admire. And I have two phenomenal business partners. And even though at times we might be at each other's necks, you know, um, we <laughs> we have the same values at the end of the day, and like we know why each of us is is in this. Um, and we have, a, you know, we've been lucky to attract a fantastic team as well. Um, so those things are what, what make the tough moments really, um, you know, much more bearable to get through. How do you feel about the, the word sustainability today? <laughs> it's really funny you should ask that. Uh, because I have been reflecting on this in the last uh, few weeks. Um, it seems like sustainability and climate change has had a reached tipping point in the last six or 12 months. In Yes sort of in the general public, there's a lot more awareness around sustainability and climate change related issues. Um, but we've been working on this for six years and many people have been working on this for, for decades longer than we have. And so I think, it's a, I think it's fantastic that a lot more people are focused on these issues. Um, I think we really need that. Um, and unfortunately, when, it, when a term becomes really common, um, it gets diluted a little bit. Um, yeah. and like sustain, sustainable compared to what? Um, and so I think that that is where we're going to need to be a little bit more focused as a society going forward. It's like we're sustainable, but 
relative to what. And as you as you kind of move through your your own process, um, you know, I asked this earlier. How do you measure impact? How do you think about sustainability? I guess for your company, there's a clear you know saving X number of gallons per year um, through our product. Um, you know, what other areas of this this impact or sustainability kind of trend, let's call it, although I hope it's not just a trend, um, do you think are are more than just greenwashing? Like how how do we make an impact an impact as as a society? And also, I guess a follow on to that is you're coming at it from a private market perspective, um, from with a bottom up approach. And then there's a lot of calls for top down, you know, regulate the banks, don't allow them to finance um, oil companies, things like that. I mean, do you believe in the effect, the efficacy of those types of those types of um, top down strategies? Or do you believe that greater good will come from, you know, the free market bottom up approach? Uh, very interesting and timely question with all the debate going on in this country right now. <laughs> I think it's both. You know, you can't have, I don't think you can solve with just one of the two approaches. You need to have um, people who are demanding change, activists. You need to have people who are uh, working on those ideas from a science and engineering perspective, from a, you know, making it relevant to, um, you know, from a consumer standpoint. How do you distribute these things? How do you get them into the hands of people? Um, how do you make it something that's financially viable? But if you don't have regulation, then uh, incentives are often perverse because there's there's always going to be regulation of some sort. Like the government is always going to be marking the um, the course in some way, either either by being very assertive or by being very hands off. Um, and I think as a you know as a global society, it's it's really hard to question the fact that in the next few decades, we will be getting more of our energy and more of our natural resources from um, from renewables. Um, and if, if we as a country don't see that as an opportunity and invest to become the world leaders in that, then we fall behind. And, and the same goes for every other country. So I think there's a lot of private opportunity and there's a lot of um, government and national responsibility to back those sorts of things. Um, and so I think it, it requires bottoms up, top down, and people talking about it. And I think, I really think we've reached a tipping point in the last year um, where people are much more aware of, of these issues and willing to make changes. Hmm. What industry or sector is the largest consumer of water worldwide? Agriculture. Agriculture consumes the, the lion's share of water. Is the technology that you've developed for showers applicable to agriculture or no? Um, it could be. And the, the truth is that it's already being used in some ways in agriculture. Um, and so it's not a sort of a natural lens to go straight over. But, you know, we, we were asked this question fairly often. And our, our approach to this is, hey. And uh, I'm just sorry to interrupt. Do you have like, do you have like order of magnitude or, or size estimates like, you know, consumers using showers versus agriculture, just water use in yeah. gallons? Agricultural use is estimated to be between 70 to 80% of water consumption. Um, wow. Yeah. And so, and the rest is broken down by a number of things, you know, from other sorts of institutional use to in-home use, consumption and so forth. Um, but our, our focus is, hey, the planet is 7 billion people right now, right? And we're in the next couple of decades going to be 10 billion people. 
And we have a finite supply of water for the you know, additional 40% or so of population. And we're using more water per capita every year. Like that's going to be a major problem. And it's going to happen first in certain pockets of the world, like California, which was running out of water a few years ago, Cape Town, which became almost the first city in the world to run out of water a couple of years ago. Beijing has huge water shortages. Um, Pakistan, Brazil, all, all of these different places. And there's no one really carrying the flag in terms of making innovative, sustainable solutions around water. You know, if, you, if you think about energy, a, a number of companies come to mind um, in terms of innovative solutions for how we use energy, from solar panels to electric cars to smart thermostats. Um, mostly Elon Musk companies. Mostly Elon Musk companies. And we think the same thing needs to happen in water. And so if Nebia can serve as a... Um, as an inspiration to get more people to look at water and invest in sustainable solutions for water on a consumer level, on, a, you know, on, a, on an agricultural level, I think you know, that would be our greatest legacy. How do you think about a situation like Cape Town? Like what happens if that, you know, a major metropolitan run, literally runs out of water? I remember three years ago in LA, I moved to LA, I think four years ago now, and you mentioned the, the droughts in California in 13, but I think the first two years I was here, LA was in a terrible drought and they were asking people not to use sprinklers and, you know, to minimize their shower time and things like that. And it's almost like people, it's such a massive, such a meta problem that I don't think people can, we can really wrap our heads around it. I think that's why climate is such, you know, is so controversial because it's so large. It's just like, we can't comprehend but what does it look like for a city to run out of water? Really bad. Yeah. <laughs> really, really, really bad. I mean, aside from oxygen, you know, like if you run out of water, like people won't live more than a day or two. What, like, what were the contingency plans in place for Cape Town, for example? Do they just truck in, you know, gallons and gallons of bottled water? Yeah. You know, I mean. Everybody stopped showering. We all smell bad. It's, it's just, it's all good. People say that you know the third world world we fought over water. Um, hopefully we never come. Hopefully we never come to that. Cape Town did a remarkable thing. They were not. They're not the only city to get that close to actually running out of water. Sao Paulo a couple of years earlier got equally close, but the the government took a different approach, which was not to talk about it or make it a, a you know such a big issue and just try to work behind the scenes. In Cape Town, they took a different approach, which was hey, we're going to put this um, in front of everybody in the global news. And we're going to call it day zero. So they literally called it days and they set a date on the calendar. And at first it was in February. And then, you know, the city dramatically cut back its water consumption and it moved out a few weeks and it moved out a few more weeks and it eventually moved out until May. And then it moved out until after the rainy season came and they were able to avoid it altogether. But in that time, the city cut its water consumption by 50%, which is like absolutely phenomenal. Um, it's really hard to wrap your head around what that looks like for a city to cut its consumption by 50% in a matter of weeks. Um, wow. Some marginalized communities had to line up at water wells to get water for their homes. Um, and so that's really bad. But it was, you know, it was a full-scale effort on everybody cutting back and being more conscious around it. Um, and, you know, I, I couldn't tell you what it looks like if we were had water other than that it would be, it would be really bad. Um, and, and it'll, it'll, it'll first get really expensive. Um, and I think that will provide the incentive for people to really cut back. And yeah, you mentioned this. Some people say that the third world war will be fought over water. 
there seem to be some political movements that are happening to secure fresh water supplies across the world. Have you been tracking that at all or it's kind of, a, you have a business to run? <laughs> sort of loosely and, you know, on the periphery. Um, I haven't followed it that closely. Got it. And so another question, um, Elon, you know, who we mentioned earlier is, you know, he's got SolarCity, SpaceX, um, Tesla. Do you think you could ever run three companies at a time, knowing what you know about running one? No way. I thought, <laughs> I thought about that you know, at times. Um, at least not being involved the way that I want to be involved. Um, I think he, he probably lives a somewhat unsustainable uh, life um, in terms of just like, you know, getting to everything and having a certain balance. Um, that, that's something that's super important to me. That just, sorry, that just rose another question for me. Um, how do you feel about the current kind of entrepreneurship culture in San Francisco? Yeah, I think it's a, I think that's a really good question. Um, and I think about that a lot. You know, we live in an age now where somehow entrepreneurs and business leaders are heralded in a similar limelight as traditional celebrities. And it's really weird phenomenon. Um, and um, I think it's, it's overblown and there's a lot of sort of uh, hype and hysteria built around the, you know, rags to riches and starting a company and becoming famous and so sort of perverse incentives for, for why people do these sorts of things. You know, the, the reason to build a company or work on a problem is not to make a lot of money. That might be the outcome if you're successful, but it's to, it's to work and create something that you think um, is needed on some level. You know, and it doesn't have to be an ethical or a environmental level for any of you. It could just be to fulfill a creative itch, you know, creative passion. Um, and, uh, and I think it puts a lot of uh, pressure on people and a lot of people sort of come into it perhaps for the wrong reasons. Um, and, it, and it can lead to, uh, you know, to burnout, something that my co-founder and I have, have thought a lot about and, and talked a lot about and got to that place. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how many hours a day um, are you spending on the business and do you, do you take days off? It's varied a lot. You know, for the first year I worked every single day at basically any hour that there was something... I could do. And, and it was, I loved it. It was what I was most excited about. Um, I was in a relationship long distance and so I had a time and I was, I was new to the city. It, it got me to the point after the end of the first year where I was neglecting certain important things in my life, my health, fitness, sleep, my relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first time I became conscientious of it. And I took a week off and sort of went on a retreat and kind of did a hard reset. Um, at different stages over the five or six years we've been working on this, I've, I've scaled up and scaled down how much I work. You know, there are just certain seasons that you, you need to work a lot more and you need to work six or seven days a week. Um, but I now am at a place where I'm much more aware of the levers that set me off. And so even if I work really hard for a week or two and get a lot done, the long-term consequence over the course of those couple of months or that quarter is going to be detrimental. So I... I try to always take at least one day off a week where I don't look at email or work at all. Um, yeah. Sometimes I take the whole weekend off. Um, and you know, the last couple of months I've been working really hard and working most weekends, but uh, the last two weeks I've taken a full day off and it's, I've just been reminded of the importance of that, that recharge. I, I have other sort of um, rules that I could try to follow. I don't look at email until I get to the office. Um, 
Okay. And uh, I don't look at my phone in my bed. I stopped doing that like four years ago. It was one of the best things I've ever done. So no yeah. phone, no phone yeah. in bed. Um, and, and have space. It's amazing how huge of an impact removing your phone from your bedroom can have. You have to like understand that like their spaces have a certain power over you and you have to create and, and nourish and respect spaces, both physical and, and non-physical spaces, you know, and so home bedroom should be one of rest and recharging and, you know, imagination and, uh, and the office should be one of, of focus and work. Um, and, you know, when you're with your friends or with your, you know, partner, uh, it should be about being with those people. Yeah, and I see I see a ring on your finger. So how has being and how has it been being both a husband and you know a startup founder over the last few years? How do you manage how do you manage that balance? Because I've started two companies and I could not imagine having done that with with a family. Do you have kids as well? No, no kids. I got married a little bit less than a year ago. Oh, congrats! Um, thank you. I have a phenomenal wife who's incredibly supportive, and she totally understands the, uh, the demand. She also knows what, what keeps me healthy and happy. And so she helps to, to remind me and keep me on base. Uh, Is she also a Silicon Valley uh, hustler working at a big company or startup or? She is a PhD student uh, in philosophy and religion. So oh, wow. We should, you know, we should have had her on the show as well. We should, we should bring both of you back, actually. Uh, she would be far more interesting to have a conversation <laughs> with I can guarantee you that. We have very interesting conversations uh, over dinner in the evening. What what philosophy would you say has had the greatest impact on her thinking and the, possibly on yours or philosopher? Yeah. Uh, well, she's definitely had a lot of what she reads and studies and thinks about has definitely had a lot of impact on me. Um, even before I started working on Nevia, she was talking about the need to have a sort of change in global consciousness around our relationship to the planet and the environment. Um, and since you asked the question, um, she is specifically interested in how, like what um, frameworks, um, be they ph philosophical, religious, political, economics, or societal frameworks and philosophies have shaped in, uh, human society over the you know, 5,000 years of recorded history that we have. Um, and you know, they've evolved in such a way that's gotten us to where we are today in 2020. And it's been fantastic to get us here. Certainly there, you know, there've been many consequences or things that we've messed up, but it's been fantastic to get here. One thing that she's convinced of that I'm convinced of, and I think a lot of people, um, think this way is they're not the same frameworks and structures that are going to get us to the future. Um, and you can see that now, like even capitalism is being put to question. You know, is the same form of capitalism that we've had in the Western world for the last 30 or 40 years the same one that's going to carry us into the next 30 or 40 years? I think almost everybody would argue, no, it's going to look somewhat different. What that difference will look like, not everybody agrees upon. Um, you know, and, and I think you know, right now we live in an era where perhaps there's a, there's, um, a lack of um, sort of spiritual balance, if you will, and, and people trying to find a more of a connection between um, purpose in what they do with their working hours, purpose in what they do with their personal lives, and, and connecting all of those things. Um, 
And uh, so those are the kinds of conversations that we have. Yeah, I think that, thank you for sharing that. I think about that, both of those questions often. Um, and I think it's ironic because I do believe that Silicon Valley has to be at the heart of the change. I mean, you know, there there's a cap on growth in nature. Um, when I think about things that just grow and don't stop, I th- I'm reminded of cancer as one example. We don't have giants anymore for a reason in most places of the world. I mean, like gigantic organisms and dinosaurs and whatnot. Um, there's just a natural, there's a natural cap, it seems. And and the mindset of the Valley is growth at all cost. And so it's like, just keep, let's just keep pumping more money into the system, more money into these companies and grow, 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 grow. And they get to a scale beyond which I think they just take on a life of their own, whether it be a company like Facebook, you know, and I don't know what breaking up Facebook looks like, right? Like I, Benedict Evans is someone that I have huge respect for, and he makes fun of people that want to break up Facebook as, you know, those that are ignorant about the way that the company is structured. Um, But I do know that, you know, a corporation that has such a massive impact on a global scale across ideas and the foundation of truth, that's really challenged. Um, So I think about kind of the future of capitalism as well, and perhaps we don't move to communism, which is like a dangerous word in, in most circles, especially in, you know, the Valley in New York city where I'm from. And, um, but you know, some of the, the issues of, of allocating resource in a top down system could be solved through new, new tech, new technologies perhaps, or new rules of governance, distributed systems, things like that. Otherwise, I'm, I'm intrigued, you know, like I, I love that people in San Francisco are starting to think about uh, living healthier personal lives. I'm also concerned with, uh, simultaneously concerned with the way that it has become almost, it's like the medium in which you introduce these ideas, the container is as important as the ideas themselves. So when you introduce mindfulness and meditation and these sorts of, you know, spiritual concepts into the container of uh, growth and competition and productivity, do they then become co-opted to serve the same ends of that broader system to the point where we have people walking around San Francisco on water fasts, telling you how they meditate 40 minutes every morning, how they haven't eaten a piece of meat in months, they don't drink coffee or they drink coffee with butter or whatever it is. And it becomes this like spiritual philosophical theater, right? That in and of itself is just perpetuating the same issues that we have um, already. So I, I think about these things all the time. That's part of the reason why I started this podcast. So I'm happy to chat, to chat with you about that stuff. I, I, Mark, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like I couldn't, I couldn't put, um, the situation I see, as I see it any more eloquently. Um, you know, are we, so sort of to take your question in, in stages. Um, I think there is something happening in Silicon Valley at the center of tech, uh, at the center of now the biggest industries and the biggest companies in the world that is moving in a really good direction. Um, I think the system is plagued from a growth at all costs mindset that's baked into the incentive structure. And that needs to change. I think there are a lot of people questioning that. Um, and that's really fantastic and really healthy. 
Where that leads, I'm not sure. Um, we will see. On the personal level, I think it's great that that's where it starts. Like a lot of people are, are having this self-awareness around balance, uh, mindfulness, uh, getting enough sleep, um, meditating, you know, and it's sort of the list goes on. Like, you know, people do some more extreme things, you know, from silent <laughs> retreats to, to using substances and so forth. And, and, uh, psychedelics having a huge resurgence. Yeah. And, and I think that it's really unfortunate when these sacred rituals and these sacred wisdom and understanding is used as a life hack. Um, mm. these, these things, these systems, these processes, um, these rituals are not designed um, for life hacks. They're designed for some bigger purpose. Um, and, and people can argue over what those different purposes are. And if, if people have certain spiritual leanings, that will inform what they think those are for. But I'm of the I'm of a deep conviction that these things are not just like for life hacks. We are not um, we are not mechanisms and mechanical structures as human beings. Like there's something far more um, mystical about us that can't be explained or understood or hacked, and we just have to be okay with that. Um, you know, um, so I love that. I, I, I totally agree with the intuition that you were hinting at. Um, and I think we have a shot in Silicon Valley as tech companies, particularly the very big ones, um, to move the discourse in the right direction. Um, the movement around B Corps, um, multiple, you know, thinking about multiple stakeholders as, as key incentives. You know, Mark Benioff is a big champion of this. Um, mm -hmm. I think those are the right discussions to have. Um, and, uh, and hopefully it will um, parlay into some real change. Yeah, I really appreciate that perspective. I think of just meditation as the prime example in my own life. You know, I find myself doing meditation, right? So it's like, I'm going to go do a meditation. Well, that almost defeats the purpose because it's just another box that I'm checking, you know, and maybe that's the way it starts. Like, you know, the path most in Western world, the path of yoga as an example starts with like an injury or a desire to get more flexible or lean physically. And then that can open up other doors. So I agree. I, I think it's, it's net, net a positive. Um, I hope that, you know, it continues to have uh, a growing effect on the Valley and, you know, the broader, uh, the broader world. Um, so we're, we're coming up on an hour now. I want to ask maybe just like a couple of rapid fire questions. I've never done this before, but I lost six podcast episodes at the beginning of this year. And um, I'm seeing it as a sign to kind of reset and try to shake things up a little bit. So, so who has had the greatest impact on your life? My parents. Your parents. Can you, can you elaborate on that at all? Sure. I didn't know how rapid fire you wanted my responses to be. Um, no, that's you're right. It's supposed to be rapid fire. I probably should just, this is what I'm saying. It's brand new. I don't know. It's not rapid enough. <laughs> no, my, my parents, my, my mom and dad, I, I'm fortunate to have two parents that loved me that um, gave everything for me that believed in me. And, you know, while relationships maybe weren't always perfect, like I was lucky to grow up in a home where love was without question. And that has formed my self-confidence, you know, my understanding of family and values so without question, my parents, my mom and my dad. My mom passed away when I was 20. She had a, a long uh, battle with a long illness, a lung transplant. And 
And so seeing her go through that was a, was a tremendous uh, learning experience, part of my formation. I'm sorry to hear that. I, I know that uh, losing a parent early is, uh, is obviously painful and challenging. So I'm sure she's, she's proud of you wherever she is. Thank you. What's your ideal Friday evening? Um, going home and, uh, and watching a movie with my wife and having some pizza and ice cream or something like that. Um, li- living, <laughs> that's because I live in San Francisco and, and to be honest, you know, the, the, the great part of San Francisco, you know, outside of work is, is the outdoors and the activities you can do on the weekend more than necessarily the nightlife. If I lived in another city, I would probably say hanging out with friends and, and, uh, and sort of enjoying the ambiance. Um, but in San Francisco, after a long week of work, that's what I like to do. Yeah, for sure. What's, what's your favorite outdoor activity? Uh, skiing. Nice. Have you gone this year? I love to ski. I did. Yeah, I've skiing this past weekend. Tahoe? Uh, in Montana. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Big Sky? Big Sky, yeah. Wow, I've never been. How's the snow? Uh, it was awesome. It was, a, it was a big storm last week, so we had great snow. Oh, that's incredible. I would say that's probably my favorite outdoor activity as well, snowboarding. So we'll have to hit it sometime. Um, it's the best. I love to actually just sit in the trees. So pe- it's just privileged, but peaceful and beautiful. Well, I'm going to cut the rapid fire there. It was a good experiment. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you want to share with the audience? Um, you know, I'll, I'll do links, link out to the business, to Nebbia, um, some of the press that you've received in the show notes, but is there anything else that you want to share before we go? It's a, uh... It's a, it's a real privilege to um, work and build uh, towards something that you really believe in. And if, if anybody out there has an itch to start a company or a project, I would say scratch that itch and talk to people that you trust um, about that idea. Um, and also be judicious about who you talk uh, with about your idea because the, an idea in its early stage is very vulnerable. And, and therefore you are very vulnerable because you are sort of very meshed with this idea. Um, and there were, there are people who will, who will build it up and give honest feedback, whether it's, you know, encouraging or not. Um, but you don't want to sort of share your pearls with anybody. It's not about keeping an idea secretive. It's more about who do you trust to, to speak truth into you and not project themselves onto your idea. And so just, just be wise about who you share that idea with, but, but definitely share it and talk about it because that's how it will get refined. That's great advice and something I hope everyone listening takes seriously because that's uh, something that um, I definitely could have used in my early days as a startup founder as well. So so thank you for sharing that. And uh, Philip, appreciate it, man. Uh, hope, to, hope we get to meet in person sometime soon. And thanks for coming on the show. Likewise, next time you're in San Francisco, I'll have you by the office to... Uh, Take a test shower in our showroom. Oh, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode, and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and, and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. You can follow me on social media 
at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium and Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Lookup Podcast um, on Facebook. So check us out. Uh, you can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out. And if there's any way that I can improve, please let me know. Feel free to reach out. If you have any guest recommendations, please let me know. Other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background, you know, this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support. I want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created. And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of the Look Up podcast. Podcast.